Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drewvon Sire, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the Pittsburgh Penguins as COVID-19 claims more members of this Penguins roster. Jeff Carter testing positive yesterday for COVID-19. Tristan Jolly was originally placed into the COVID protocol as well and unable to practice. However, he was back out onto the ice today. So, bearing anything unusual, Tristan Jolly would be cleared to play tomorrow against Toronto. Of course, Jeff Carter definitively out, which means Evan Rodriguez will be the number one center for the Penguins. Now, when you came into this season, you didn't anticipate Evan Rodriguez to be the second-line center, much less four games in and have him be the first-line center for the time being. It's a situation where the Penguins are lucky to have Evan Rodriguez because of his versatility, because of his ability to be a depth piece for the Penguins. And now you are relying on it to have him be your first-line center. Of course, Teddy Bluger could have very well slid up to that first line, but Bluger is very comfortable in the bottom six, and I think Mike Sullivan likes to keep him in that bottom six because of his strong ability to win face-offs, and you need some sort of balance in terms of your four forward lines. Now, Tristan Jolly, of course, back out on the ice today practicing. So it almost appears as if Tristan Jolly's one-day stint in the protocol was to ensure that he wasn't a close contact of Jeff Carter. And if he was, to have another test come back negative. Because while the league doesn't require players to be tested every day anymore, the Penguins still have their players being tested every day, regardless of their vaccination status, which is how they found out that Jeff Carter was an asymptomatic positive case. And so, Tristan Jolly, it's great to see that he's not having to go into that protocol because it would be an, another blow for this Penguins team early in the season. You're already down Crosby. You're down Malkin. You've lost some games with... Jake Gensel, Zach Aston Reese because of COVID. Jeff Carter is going to be out for some time. And Tristan Jolly would have just been another name on the list. And for Jolly to appearing to be avoiding that is a great sign to see because obviously you don't want your players to be missing games for any reason. Hence why the league pretty much forced all of the players to get the vaccine, regardless of your opinion of it or not. The NHL does not care. And honestly, the Penguins, they were, in a sense, lucky last year because there were just a pair, maybe at most, of COVID cases within their roster when the league didn't have the requirements that it does now. And so, obviously, the, it was injuries that hurt the Penguins last season. And even still, they were able to claim the number one seed in the Eastern Division, ultimately winning it. But it was the fact that COVID necessarily wasn't, this, wasn't the issue for the Penguins when there were other teams that had multiple players missing for long periods of time because of it. So... The Penguins, they got lucky with it last year. They were smart. They took care of themselves. And now you're going to see more players potentially be like Jeff Carter or Jake Gensel or Zach Aston Reese where they miss a game or two because of it. And that's just going to happen. That's part of life. Players get sick. Players get injured. You've got to deal with it. You've got to be battling through the adversity and find a way to win regardless of the situation you're in. Now, Tristan Jolly has been putting on some very promising performances early this season. Of course, I talked about already 
a few weeks ago, his performance in the game against the Tampa Bay Lightning. He then didn't start the game against the Florida Panthers. That was a game for Casey Smith. Then the Penguins came home against the Blackhawks. Jari did extremely well there. Of course, gave up those two later goals in the game, but it was still a very solid performance from him. And then the last home game, the most recent one for the Penguins, Monday night against the Dallas Stars, Tristan Jolly was arguably the reason why the Penguins were in the game even at that point. Because, to be quite honest, the Penguins were not necessarily the most productive in front of goal. Yes, they had 28 shots compared to the Stars' 29. But Mike Sullivan even admitted with the time of possession in the attacking zone, the quality of chances the Penguins had, they should have found a way to bury more into the net. Ultimately didn't. It went to a shootout, and Dallas came out on top. And in that game alone, Tristan Jolly, a 9.66 save percentage, of course, 28 goals on 29 shots, the shootout winner ultimately not being counted against him as a goal allowed because of the fact that it is in a shootout. But overall this season, Tristan Jolly, a 162 goals against average and 935 save percentage. Of course, Tristan Jolly is going to continue to play well, or at least we would like to hope, because he's working with a new goaltender coach, Andy Kyoto. He knows there's pressure on him after bottling the playoff series last this past season against the New York Islanders. So he has to find a way to stand strong. And earlier this season, while the Penguins necessarily haven't relied on him every single game to make big saves, and they haven't relied on him every single game to bail them out, with the exception, of course, of the game Monday night against Dallas, I mean, you're going to have those games sometimes where it's a low-scoring game, very competitive. Dallas was right there in the game as well for much of it. And you needed your goaltender to come up with big saves. He ultimately got you to the shootout, and the Penguins just couldn't capitalize there, which is a situation where you miss players like Crosby, like Malkin, who have that shootout experience. Nonetheless, Tristan Jolly, of course, looking to replicate some of the success that he had over longer stretches back in the 2019-2020 season when he was nominated to the All-Star Game after, of course, an injury to one of the originally selected goaltenders. Now, Tristan Jolly, of course, not being named to the roster the first go-around, but he's still certainly a part of that roster. And in the end, that's really all that matters because, yes, there was an injury to one of the two or three goaltenders selected for that All-Star game. But again, injuries happen. And so he was ultimately selected. And I know I've said before that Tristan Jari hadn't been the same that season other than that 20-game stretch. And in a way, it was luck that he got to that All-Star game because teams were still in the process of trying to figure him out. So he had the element of surprise in his game. But... We're now seeing through just a pair of starts, rather three starts for Tristan Jari, that he is capable of putting up those numbers again. Yes, he's allowed five goals through three games. That's not a concern for me because it's an average of 1.6 goals against per game, hence his 1.62 goals against average statistic. The 9.35 save percentage is the bigger thing for me. And not to say that his goals against average is bad by any means, because it's great. But the save percentage is really what stands out, especially the 966 percentage against the Dallas Stars. The game against the Chicago Blackhawks, it was a little lower, but again, he only had 20 shots on goal because the Blackhawks were so poor that night and so flat, they didn't necessarily create as many chances as they would have liked. So if they create more chances, then Tristan Jolly is absolutely going to have more saves, and I still don't see him letting in more than two goals in that game. And so 
if the Penguins can continue to get this version of Tristan Jari, where he's mentally sharp, he's focused, he's strong in the crease, he handles the puck well with the stick, you're going to see them continue to win games. And then that becomes a question of, well, can we turn Tristan Jari into that workhorse goaltender? Because last season he was with Matt Murray, rather, two seasons ago he was with Matt Murray before Murray was ultimately traded to Ottawa. And him and Murray were at times splitting evenly in the crease. Murray would have a stretch of games where he would play well, Sullivan would ride the hot hand. And Murray would struggle and he turned to Jolly the next night. Jolly would have a handful of games of, that he played strong and Sullivan would ride the hot hand in Jolly. And then, of course, when they were in the bubble for the postseason, Sullivan went to Matt Murray for the first three games. It was a winner-take-all situation, rather a winner-go-home situation. Sullivan turned to Joey. Ultimately, Joey was the losing goaltender because Montreal went on to win that series. But it was a situation, again, where Murray struggled and Sullivan turned to Joey. Last season was Jolly's first test of being that number one goaltender ahead of Casey DeSmith. And you saw at times the lack of experience showed. He made some mistakes. And then, of course, we all know what happened in the playoffs. But now in year two of being that number one goaltender, Tristan Jolly is showing early signs that he has taken the steps forward both physically and mentally to handle that. And... It's not to say that Casey DeSmith played bad in the game against the Florida Panthers because the first two periods, he was ultimately the reason why they were still in it. But this third period, he started to falter over time. He let up, let up the game winner. And again, I'm still not completely sold on Casey DeSmith. Yes, he has games and he has moments where he looks really strong. But then he has other moments where he looks so weak and he looks so flustered in goal. And I don't understand why the Penguins still, to this day, did not give Louis Domingue more of a shot in the preseason. He made one appearance, never saw the ice once, he never saw the ice anymore in the preseason, other than in maybe a warm up skate and then was ultimately placed on waivers, cleared them to go to Wilkes-Barre Scranton. And so now you're in that situation where you have someone with NHL experience in Louis Domingue. You have him in your system for a reason because you didn't trust what Maxime Lagasse could do. And so now... You're just going to let him continue to play in the AHL. Now, of course, it's Casey DeSmith's job to lose. But if DeSmith continues to play like he did in that game against the Florida Panthers, where he has some strong moments, some weak moments, then I don't believe you can say definitively that Casey DeSmith is still your best backup option to Tristan Jari. And I think then it starts to open up more and you can possibly get away with saying there might be a backup goaltender controversy, especially if Louis Domingue plays well. Now, of course, Domingue missed the first two games for the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins because of a lower body injury, but he has since returned to practice and will be featuring in games for them very soon. So once he starts to get his feet underneath of him, starts to really establish himself as the number one goaltender for Wilkes-Barre Scranton, the Penguins are going to be fine, both Wilkes-Barre and Pittsburgh, because then you have three strong goaltenders, and if DeSmith falters, then you can't be afraid to turn to Louis Domingue, whether or not you keep DeSmith on the NHL roster and make him just a healthy scratch, or 
if you ultimately decide that he needs to continue to work on things in the AHL, then you try to have him clear waivers because you can't continue to play Louis Domingue. If you call him up, you can't continue to play Louis Domingue for a stretch of five, six, seven games, and the only work that Smith is getting is practice. At that point, it would be very counterintuitive for Casey to Smith and to try and continue to let him work on where his weaknesses are. And so I think if it came to that, especially if Louis Domingue was called up and played well, you would see the Penguins try to get the Smith to ultimately clear waivers. Whether or not they would be successful is a different story. But then if that's the case, you go out and you find another goaltender in free agency that has NHL experience. Domingue wasn't the only one out there with that NHL experience in free agency. And I'm sure that there is a goaltender out there somewhere that has NHL experience, is either on waivers or is a free agent that the Penguins can go out and sign. And it may end up weakening the goaltending talent that they have in their top three options, especially if DeSmith gets claimed by another team and finds his form again, like he did in 2018-2019 when he often filled in for Matt Murray. But until that happens, I don't necessarily see the Penguins losing much in DeSmith if by some chance Louis Domingue were to be called up and DeSmith didn't clear waivers. Now again, all of this talk about Louis Domingue is just pure speculation because for the time being, Casey DeSmith is still the Penguins' backup goaltender. Mike Sullivan and the organization have trust in him, but there's also a reason why through four games, DeSmith has only featured in one. And Tristan Jolly is more than likely going to continue to be in that workhorse role because DeSmith necessarily isn't as sharp in key situations. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, it's the latest with the Pittsburgh Pirates as they look to re-sign one of their key bats and then also what it means for one of their current players on the roster along with an ESPN Insider's comments about starting pitching right here on the Bethany Online Radio. You can be heard anywhere you go by downloading the free Radio FX app available via the App Store and on Google Play. Bethany College Radio streams Bethany news and events announcements, along with select sporting events and music and talk shows. Produced by Bethany College students.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates now. I mentioned before the break, the Pirates looking to re-sign one of their power bats, and he goes by the name of Yoshi Sutsugo. Of course, this is something that I mentioned in weeks prior that the Pirates absolutely needed to do because of the lack of power bats that the Pirates have in their lineup aside from Sutsugo. And he hit well for them this past season, was originally designated for assignment by the Los Angeles Dodgers and Tampa Bay Rays, has ended up in Pittsburgh for the 2021 season, or had ended up in Pittsburgh, I should say, and did really well. So it makes sense as to why Ben Charrington and the organization want to keep him around. Of course, the money is ultimately going to be the decider as to how long and how much Sutsugo makes, but it's a great sign to see that the Pirates are committed to keeping Sutsugo around because I can almost with 100% confidence state that Neil Huntington would not have even attempted to try to extend Yoshi Sutsugo. He would have let him walk in free agency. Now, of course, Sutsugo can play first base. He can play right field. Much better at first base than right field. He would serve as a perfect designated hitter because his defense in both positions isn't necessarily the greatest. But, of course, we don't know what's going to happen with the DH. As much as we would love to say right now, one way or the other, there will be or there will not be a designated hitter. We don't know. Because that is pending the agreements between the players and the owners. And as of right now, we don't know what that agreement is going to entail. Because there's so much on the table, there's so much at stake, who knows what's going to be included and when. And as much as we would, like I said, as much as we would all like to sit here and say there will be a designated hitter, that's unknown. I hope that there is, and it's not that I have changed my stance on the position of you have to play the field in order to bat, but unfortunately this is where baseball is going. I may not like it, I don't like it whatsoever, but this is where baseball is going, and I have to change my thoughts on the game of baseball, thoughts on the designated hitter, and if it allows the Pirates to keep someone like Yoshi Sutsugo in their lineup with that strong, powerful bat, then I'm ultimately all for it because regardless of whether there's a designated hitter or not, I want to see the Pirates succeed, have that strong, powerful hitter in their lineup, and ultimately help them win games because that's what matters more than anything in terms of lineup construction, and who's going up to bat. Now, what does that necessarily mean for Colin Moran? Because Moran was shifted over from third base to first because of the young phenom Key Brian Hayes and how gifted he is defensively, along with Moran being poor defensively at third base. So now you have Yoshi Sutsugo, who is, again, much better at first base than right field. Are you going to, and again, this is dependent upon whether or not there's a designated hitter across the National League, are you going to platoon Sutsugo and Moran and rotate them between who plays designated hitter or who serves as the designated hitter and who plays first base? Are you going to specifically assign one to be one or the other? Is Sutsugo going to play in right field and Moran at first base? Or are you going to play Sutsugo at first base and then look to trade Colin Moran? I would like to see the Pirates keep Colin Moran at least for one more season 
because Moran is one of the more powerful bats in the Pirates lineup. He's not necessarily a big slugger the way that Yoshi Tsutsugo is, but what Moran's what Moran brings to the table, I should say, is that he is a consistent hitter. He's constantly hitting between 260, 275. And what he does is he has that flair in his bat where he's always driving it to the gap. It may sneak over the wall every now and then, but he's still one of the Pirates' stronger hitters. And yes, his speed is dreadful. I clearly understand that. But when you have Moran as one of your better more powerful hitters, you cannot look to move on from him, even though you have Sutsugo. So if it comes down to it, I believe the Pirates should be looking to have Moran at first, Sutsugo in right. If they get the universal designated hitter this year, finally, then I think they should designate one to be the first baseman, one to be the designated hitter. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't rotate every now and then because Moran is going to need days off from first base. Sutsugo will get days off from playing as the designated hitter, but the Pirates will need to consistently have one in one spot of the lineup, the other in the second spot of the lineup. Now... Again, that doesn't mean they can't rotate, but what we saw in 2020 for the Pirates was is that it was every day it was a rotation of who's the designated hitter now. And that is what cannot happen for the Pirates and for Derek Shelton because Derek Shelton almost used it as a rotational thing to give players a day off. And while I understood where he was coming from with that, because it was a shortened season, because of the short ramp-up time, that cannot continue to be the way that the Pirates go about using the designated hitter. The only way that they could go about doing something like that is if they signed someone who was a powerful bat on the bench, similar to Sutsugo, and they switched it or they platooned them, is the correct term, where Sutsugo faced right-handed starting pitchers, and then this bench bat, for instance, someone like C.J. Crone, came off the bench whenever a left-handed pitcher was starting. Now, I don't necessarily know what's going to happen with C.J. Crone, where he is currently, if he even is a free agent. That was just a hypothetical example of a strong bat that was right-handed that would face lefties. But you get the idea as to how the Pirates would go about platooning the DH spot, and that would be something that I would say and completely agree with, because Sutsugo, yes, he can hit lefties. He's not necessarily the strongest at it. Colin Moran still can't hit lefties. So if you have one hitter and Colin Moran in the lineup that struggles against left-handed pitching. Sutsugo, if he can figure it out, you may be able to get away with it. If not, then you sure as heck aren't going to want him to be in the lineup too, and you have two basically automatic outs in your lineup. But what I hope the Pirates do, and I hope they, de they get that designated hitter, is for the time being, Sutsugo as the DH, Moran at first base. And then you have that right field spot open to sign a free agent or have it be a competition between said free agent and Travis Swaggerty. Now, as I mentioned last week, I don't necessarily see Swaggerty at this very given moment being in the Pirates outfield to start the 2022 season because of how much time he missed last year with his injury and he had just started at AAA Indianapolis. So it would be smart for Ben Harrington to assign him there from the beginning and ultimately get him some work in before promoting him to the big leagues. However, if Travis Swaggerty shows 
in spring training that he is the best option for the Pirates in right field. We've seen before that Ben Charrington is willing to be aggressive. And Ben Charrington will have Travis Swaggerty start the season in right field. So I'm hopeful that Swaggerty can pull that off because if you can get Swaggerty to be that right fielder with Reynolds in center, Gamble in left, because the Pirates, again, should be looking to bring back Ben Gamble, then you have that fourth outfielder on the bench. It continues to make the Pirates stronger, and it continues to put them in prime positions to go out there and win as many baseball games as possible and improve. Now, before the music break, I talked about a particular ESPN insider and his comments about the starting pitching situation. The Players Association in Major League Baseball have seen the game change. You're seeing openers more often. You're seeing starting pitchers have much shorter leashes, especially in playoff games. And Buster Olney of ESPN is very adamant that there's a big need for the Players Association and the league to talk about pitching changes and restore the meaningfulness of a starting pitcher, citing that it would be better for the game of baseball, better for the players' union, and looking at how much money starting pitchers have gotten over the past several years as his justification for those citations. Now, of course people were, in a way, confused by what he was saying, asking him how they would go about doing this. And I'm going to read you Buster Oni's exact comment and just try to let you take it in in a way that makes more sense than it did to me. Buster only tweeted, and I quote, limit the managers to the use of five pitchers per nine innings with obvious exceptions for injuries and blowouts. What? First of all, I mean, I understand where he's coming from with the exceptions. That's not the issue with the tweet. What I have an issue with is, first of all, how are you... As a baseball insider at ESPN, going to try and tell Major League Baseball what to do. Second of all, why are you going to try and say that a manager in a close game, in a 2-1 game, should only be able to use five pitchers per nine innings? If there's a situation, hypothetically... The Pirates are in a 2-1 game against the Cincinnati Reds. Runners on first and second in the bottom of the eighth inning. And Joey Votto comes to the plate. The current pitcher is Jason Shreve. No, 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 no. Take that back. Current pitcher is... Oh, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank here. Anyways, it's a right-handed pitcher on the mound for the Pirates. And Derek Shelton wants to turn to Anthony Banda, a left-hander in the bullpen but then also have David Bednar come in the, in the ninth for a save. But that right-hander is the Pirates' fourth pitcher. Derek Shelton then has the choice. He either has to bring in Anthony Banda to try and get a four-out save and not use Bednar, or he has to take the chance that this right-handed pitcher is ultimately going to record the out before giving up that game-tying run. The thought of this happening in baseball is absolutely absurd. There's no reason for Major League Baseball to crack down and say, you know what, we're going to limit you as to how many pitchers you can use per game. Honestly, I think it's bad enough that they're limiting the amount of mound visits. There should be no reason why pitching coaches shouldn't be able to go out to the mound and talk to their pitchers. Of course, if a team's going out to the mound two or three times per inning, then there's obviously an issue. But... If a pitching coach comes out to the mound once per inning, there's nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. Yes, it slows down the game, but that's baseball. If that annoys fans so much 
then obviously baseball isn't the sport for them. And when there is that pitching change, if you're not already on your phone, that gives you a time, or rather not a pitching change, pitching mound visit. If there is that mound visit and you're not already on your phone, it gives you a second to pull out your phone, check any notifications, text messages you may have, respond to them, do whatever you would with them. If you're playing somebody on a game, you can take that time to use your turn, and then by the time you're done, the game's back on and ready to go. And so, again, for Buster Oney to publicly state that managers should be limited to five pitchers per nine innings is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. The thought of him even bringing it up frustrates me frustrates me, excuse me, because of how insane it sounds and how, to be quite frank, stupid he is for even suggesting that. You cannot tell a manager that they're limited to five pitchers per nine innings. And just like the Arizona Fall League, you cannot tell a manager you're only allowed to have two infielders on each side of second base. No, that's baseball. If Derek Shelton wants to shift and have three infielders on the right side of second base because there's a heavy bat up at the plate that likes to pull the ball, then you let him do it. If a manager wants to use a new pitcher every inning, you let them do it. It's not conventional. It's not traditional. But the game of baseball is changing in some regards. Yes, there are areas where it shouldn't change. But this is an area where it should if it gets you wins and it gets fans to the ballpark to see an exciting baseball team, who cares if a starting pitcher only goes five innings instead of six now? Who cares how many pitchers a manager uses? It's their bullpen. It's them who has to deal with either a shortened bullpen or sending someone out there on shortened rest. It's not Buster Oney's responsibility to manage that bullpen. It's not Major League Baseball's responsibility to manage that bullpen when there's tired arms after four relievers were used the night before. That is an individual manager's responsibility and that manager's responsibility only. So Buster Oney, your comment is absolutely ridiculous, makes no sense, and the thought of you even suggesting it is just downright stupid. Downright stupid. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. We come back, today's final segment, looking at Pittsburgh Steelers football and how they can get Minka Fitzpatrick back to his 2019 self and a look at how Matt Canada's first seven games, rather six games, have gone as offensive coordinator right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Here's today's stem tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at She Can Stem. A message from the Ad Council.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show right here on the Bethany Online Radio for today's final segment looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned before the break, Minka Fitzpatrick ultimately needs to get back to his 2019 self. Now, 2020 was a bit of an off year for him. It wasn't necessarily a bad year, but it wasn't the Minka Fitzpatrick we all know and love. And this season... Again, Minka Fitzpatrick isn't necessarily playing poorly. He's doing better than what he did last season, but he's still not his old self in 2019 where he was a defensive menace. He gave opposing quarterbacks nightmares and had so many interceptions for the Steelers at the very least in the first half of the season. And... I don't necessarily know if it's because of how the Steelers are using Minka Fitzpatrick through Keith Butler as to why he's not making as many interceptions if teams are still avoiding even throwing the ball remotely close to him for fear of what he can do. But through six games this season, Minka Fitzpatrick does not have an interception. As a safety that you traded so many assets for, for him to not have a single interception, that just can't happen. I mean, this is your big secondary playmaker going through six games without an interception. I mean, obviously, you're happy with the tackles that he's making, he has 31 of them through six games. But to not have him have any interceptions after the way he had five in 2019, he even had four in 2020, last year. So while 2020 wasn't necessarily as good as 2019 because Minka Fitzpatrick was all over the field for the Steelers in 2019. He still had four interceptions. And again, he has none through six games so far this season. His stats continue to decline with the number of interceptions that he has. Now, of course, I think Minka Fitzpatrick has gotten better with being able to stop the run game, focus more on his ability to wrap up opposing running backs, receivers, and tight ends because in the past he would always just try to shoulder them down to the ground or try to shove them out of bounds, most of the time not working. But you have to get Minka Fitzpatrick back to that defensive menace role that he had in 2019 and partially even in 2020 where Anytime a team throws near him, there's a good chance of it getting intercepted if teams are even willing to go about doing that and throw the ball near him. Minka Fitzpatrick, whether he's being used improperly by Keith Butler, whether it's just him not necessarily being in the right place at the right time, or if teams are continuing to avoid him, regardless of what it may be, it all falls on... Keith Butler ultimately and Mike Tomlin to find ways to disguise him, find ways to get him to be more impactful and more in the game. If they're using him in the box, now the box is defined as the defensive linemen who are down on the line of scrimmage and then the linebackers. It makes a box on the field between those positions and the offensive line on the opposite side of the ball. If they have Minka Fitzpatrick down in the box, there's no point whatsoever in having him play down there. If you're trying to make Minka Fitzpatrick play like Jamal Adams, it's not going to work. Minka Fitzpatrick is not Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams is a linebacker that Seattle uses as a safety because he was labeled as a safety coming out of the draft 
and nobody wants to be the one to officially change him to a linebacker. But Jamal Adams is essentially a linebacker. Minka Fitzpatrick is a true safety. So if he's being used in the box, you've got to cut that out. Absolutely have to cut that out because it's not doing him any good. Yes, it's helping him learn how to stop the run, but at what cost? You have no one now in your secondary capable of that X-factor role and the ability to come up with the most athletic interceptions like Minka Fitzpatrick. It's just not going to work like that. And for the Steelers to continue to let that happen, I don't understand why they're not recognizing that and why they're not trying to go about something differently to get Minka Fitzpatrick more involved. Because they need Minka Fitzpatrick to get more involved. They need Minka Fitzpatrick to be a strong playmaker for the Steelers and their defense as a whole, like he was in 2019 and in part last season. There was a play last night in the Browns-Broncos game where John Johnson, the former Los Angeles Ram, was in coverage of, I believe it was Jarvis Landry. No, he was looking for John Brown. Bridgewater was looking for John Brown, and John Johnson baited forward like he was going to be a rover over the middle portion of the field. And as Bridgewater released the throw that was a bit underthrown, but still would have cleared John Johnson, Johnson dropped back, stepped right in front of John Brown, and had one of the easiest interceptions you will ever see. That is the type of play the Steelers need to use with Minka Fitzpatrick. Disguise him as that rover and then have him drop at the last second like John Johnson did last night. Have him show blitz early in the line of scrimmage and then drop back at the last second. Even if he is ending up in the box on a passing play, Teams are always going to have somebody running a crossing route over the middle or a slant over the middle that Minka Fitzpatrick can then shadow and find a way to prevent that receiver from making a play. It's just all about creativity at this point for the Steelers, or should I say the lack of that they've shown through the first six games, because you're not going to be able to continue keeping Minka Fitzpatrick and using him the way that he has been used so far. You need Minka Fitzpatrick to be that legitimate threat defensively. And it's not to say that Minka Fitzpatrick still isn't a threat defensively, but you need him to be more of a threat. And you need Minka Fitzpatrick to be the way he was in 2019, where teams were absolutely terrified to even throw the ball near him, so much so that you saw his stats in the second half of the season decline because of it. And you can't blame Minka Fitzpatrick for that because teams are looking to avoid throwing the ball anywhere near him. But you have to find a way to get Minka Fitzpatrick at least back to what he was in 2020, where he's finding a way to still come up with big interceptions, still finding a way to make his presence known, both tackling and in the air, and force teams to either make a decision of not throw the ball anywhere near him, or if they do, be extremely careful, and then at times you'll see quarterbacks miss completely because they're trying to be too precise, they're trying to be too perfect, and they end up making a terrible throw because it's such a tight window. And that's not something that just Ben Roethlisberger has done. That's something every quarterback in the National Football League has done where they try to be too precise, too sharp, and it ultimately ends up costing them and they have that bad throw. I'd even make the argument that's what happened last night with Bridgewater when John Johnson intercepted him. Bridgewater tried to place it perfectly into that window. It was an underthrown ball, and Bridgewater ultimately paid the price. Again, it was a great play by John Johnson and a great scheme from Cleveland, but it's also a situation of Bridgewater trying to force the ball into a situation or into a position that may or may not have been the most ideal. Now, 
I also want to look at Matt Canada's first six games as an offensive coordinator for the Steelers. Early on, there were some major concerns because Matt Canada was, in a way, playing very much like what we saw from Randy Feekner, where it was short little passes over the middle. It was a lot of crossing routes, bubble screens, etc. And the running game was non-existent. Of course, that was when the tensions were high between Roethlisberger and Canada, both of them blaming the other as to why things were faltering, why the offense was struggling. And there was no cohesion between the two of them. And now you're starting to see things open up. You're starting to see the run game be more successful with Najee Harris. You're starting to see Ben Roethlisberger have much more time in the pocket. He's able to throw the ball 10, 15 yards downfield. He's making plays. The playbook is expanding. The Steelers are using much more play action than they once did. They're not just relying on three-yard drag routes across the middle and bubble screens. Those aren't completely eliminated from the playbook, and they shouldn't be. But it was the idea that they needed to be utilized less frequently, and now you're seeing that. It's still certainly not perfect for the Steelers' offense. There's still certainly areas where they can improve. And I talked about those on Monday that they need to work on with the bye week that they have currently, and then also the preparation leading up to the Browns game next Sunday on Halloween. The Steelers' offense is showing signs that it can be better and will be better than what it was under Randy Feigner. Matt Canada is the right guy for the job. He has an offensively gifted mind, probably not as good as Sean McVay, but there's very few coaches who are as offensive-minded as Sean McVay. But Matt Canada is showing that ability to really stretch the field and allow the Steelers to be a much more dynamic offense, incorporate both the pass and the run game, and go out there to make the Steelers competitive offensively. Now, whether it's Canada's play calling that had so many drives stall out for the Steelers' offense over the past two or three weeks, whether it's Roethlisberger himself not making the plays, that's really the only area at this point where I can see Matt Canada still needing to improve as offensive coordinator in terms of having Big Ben finish off those drives. The Steelers' offense played decently well in the first half against the Seattle Seahawks. The second half was abysmal, absolutely abysmal. And that cannot happen where it's a tale of two halves for the Steelers. You cannot have that happen week in and week out because you're never going to be successful if you continue to have that. Yes, you might squeak out a win here and there, but in the long run, it's ultimately not the recipe for success. It's not going to be one that the Steelers can rely on week in and week out, and they're going to have to find a way to go about doing things differently because you cannot sit there and say, well, we scored 14 points in the first half. We put up two touchdowns. That's enough. And then you go out there and try to have your defense grind out 30 minutes of football without ultimately giving up more points than what you scored in the first half. And as strong as the Steelers' defense is, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out in their favor. Because even a backup quarterback like Geno Smith had plenty of strong plays in that second half and ultimately led the Seahawks to a comeback win, got them to overtime, and then had he not fumbled, I'm not sure the Steelers would have came away with the win. They may not have lost, but I don't think that they win that game either. And so now you're looking at a difference of 2-3-1 three, and one, or 3-3, three, and three, or even worse, 2-4. and four. And... Again, just that one win can make so much of a difference for the Steelers, so much of a difference for them down the stretch because their strength of schedule in the last eight, nine weeks of the season is one of the hardest in the NFL. So this offense really needs to get in sync. It starts with Matt Canada. They're getting much better. If this offense still looked like it did in weeks one through three, 
I would have absolutely no hope for this season. Even if the Steelers were 3-3, three and three, I would have no hope for this season or very little of it if the offense looked like it did in weeks one through three. But you're seeing it start to play out. You're seeing things start to open up more. Roethlisberger's stretching defenses out downfield. Najee Harris is keeping defenses on their toes because of his ability to run the football. And that's exactly what you want. Last season, especially when teams caught on to what the Steelers were doing, cornerbacks were pressing receivers at the line of scrimmage. Teams were stacking the box, kind of like what Seattle did, forcing the Steelers to throw the football. And they would essentially just run a zone five to ten yards beyond the line of scrimmage because they knew that's all Ben Roethlisberger was going to try and target. And they knew that's nine times out of ten where he was going to throw the ball. And it ultimately worked out because the Steelers' offense faltered, resulting in them going 1-5 over the final six games, including the playoff loss to the Cleveland Browns, who they square off against coming out of the bye week. We'll touch more on that next week. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, thank you all for tuning in today. Have a great weekend, and be sure to tune in on Monday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.